This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time and trying not to be kicked back. <laughs> and um, as you may notice, Taylor sounds a little bit different. It's not because she has a cold or a, she's going with the sexy, raspy voice or anything like that. We have We set up these plans days, sometimes weeks in advance of when we're going to record, and as we were beginning to record, the power went off at Taylor's house. So we were trying to do this with battery backups. That didn't work. So we're doing, uh, on, on Taylor's end, she's using her phone and a, uh, and a headset, a, um, just like a earbuds and a, with a microphone, right? That's it. <laughs> All right, but, but we are here for you today. And we do have a topic, and that topic is going to be antagonist and protagonist related. But your hero is only as strong as the antagonist they're pitted against. Yes. So we will get to that. But before we do, we mentioned last week that uh, Taylor's new book had, had just been released, as you know, if you listen to this regularly. But she does have some events coming up. So let's... let's uh, Tell people what those are, when they are, and how they can get there to see you if they're in the Texas area. Well, that's a really good point, Texas. This has been a very chaotic year for me, so um, I'm really only doing a handful of events. And um, I will be in Houston at Murder by the Book on the 21st of January, and I will be in Austin at the Barnes & Noble in the, the Arboretum Barnes & Noble on the 24th of January. These are both evening events, so please check websites. And then I will be in Dallas at Interbank Books um, in February. And, oh, my God, I don't have the date right in front of me for that one. Um, but it will be local, so that'll be fun. Um, oh, actually, that's the 13th of February, and that will be at 6 at Interbank Books in um, Dallas on Lover's Lane. Lover's Lane? Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. That's like a very famous street here in Dallas. Why? Uh, it's just one of the the streets that uh, you have to know Dallas geography, but it, it's below the 635 loop and runs through like old money Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> but Lover's Lane. I mean, okay. All right. Yeah. Is it primarily a commercial street? No. Is it like the red um, it red light the, district or something? No, no, no. Like um, that's where all like you there's like there's Royal, there's Lovers, there's um, there's a whole series of streets, big big cross streets like that. That's down in a very uh, affluent. I mean, they run for quite some time. So as if you if you're on the wrong end of them, it's going to be maybe not so great part of town. But the the area that I'll be in is more of the affluent side of it. So you're covering large swathes of swatch swathes swaths of Texas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Texas, yes. We're doing Houston, Dallas, and Austin. All right, but all driving distance for you, right? 
How far is Houston from Dallas? It really depends because Dallas is really, 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 really big. So it depends where you're starting from because <laughs> it could, could make as much of an hour or more difference in the drive. But generally, it's between four and five hours. And it depends on where in Houston you're going, too, because Houston's also really, 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 really big. Uh, and both cities have horrendous traffic. And so, then there's the whole Texas thing, hours. which is also really, really, really big. Yeah. So, so San Antonio is like five hours-ish. Austin's like three and a half, depending on where. Three and a half hours. And are these all bookstores that you've done events with before? Um, no, actually. I mean, Murder by the Book, I've been there every year. I've never missed a year of any of my books. But um, in Tirabang, this will be my first year doing with them. I used to, because this is how it worked out with the very, very first book and the book launches, um, there's this town far north of Dallas. Well, it's considered far north Dallas. It's not like Oklahoma or anything. Um, it's called Frisco. And um, that's where I started out doing the very first um, launches. And so just sort of as a tradition, I've just kind of stuck with that. But um, things have kind of changed. Um, people that I was working with before have moved on, and the coordination has gotten harder and harder to manage. So I'm now going to the heart of Dallas um, to, to do it this year within Tierbang because they're, they're an indie bookstore, which makes me very happy. They've been great. It's through them that we've been able to do these pre-order autograph books. Right. And right. They're so That's why the name is with. familiar. Yes. Cause I've put them in the yeah. show notes before. Yeah. And they've got, they got like lot the, towards the end of 2019, they got hit by a tornado. And so they lost their retail space. They had to start fresh. Um, it's been quite, a year for them. And so for anybody who's listening who would like to attend an author event but can't or really wants to support indie bookstores, doesn't have one local to support, um, Interbang does a, a book, like a monthly book club type thing where they send out autographed books once a month to their member. Like you get a membership with them and they, they regularly send you um, autographed books as part of this thing. So it's a great way to discover new authors, a great way to increase your collection. It's a great way to support an independent bookstore. So it's all available on their website, um, which is in tearbangbooks.com. So yeah, check them out. And then in Austin, it'll be my first time doing this particular Barnes and Noble. Um, there's um, the, I think he's like the general manager. I met him years and years and years and years ago through, um, through a connection and he's been a fan of my work, and he's always been super supportive. And um, but I always ended up going to to book people, which is in the heart of Austin. And um, John just happened to be at BoucherCon this year, and we bumped into each other. And he's like, "Please, would you come to my store?" And I was like, "Oh my god, I'd be so excited to do that." So that's how I ended up in Barnes and Noble. Oh, this how year cool! In Austin. How cool! Very exciting. All right, so we have a topic today. So let's get to it. All right. So this is a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, um, that of hero versus antagonist. And I think it may possibly matter more to me than it does to most people simply because of the types of books that I write and the types of characters that I write, which are, um, they're all, you know, high octane, very skilled and what have you. And, the, the thing that I've learned um, about building intensity in these sequences and scenes 
is how much of it has to do with the opponent. And this is not a concept that I personally developed, unlike many of the other Hack the Craft things. This is pretty well known, but it surprises me how often I see authors violate this without realizing what they're doing. And so what will happen is you'll get a character who's supposed to be pretty kick-ass or what, what have you, and in trying to make that character sound smarter, faster, bolder, stronger, whatever, the author will downplay the opponent. So it'll be like, you know, they went into this room, but what those bad guys didn't know was she was smarter than them. I mean, obviously, they're not using those exact words, right? But that's kind of the context, is they will um, one-up the bad guys by front-loading the, you know, she saw through it and she knew exactly what she was going to do and they were never going to get the upper hand of her type thing. And what that does, instead of making the character, your, your hero or heroine, as the case may be, look better, it makes them look dumber and weaker. And the reason for that is that, and, and I cannot stress this enough, your hero or heroine is only as smart or as fast or as quick uh, in fight, as strong in fighting um, as the villain they are pitted against, the antagonist they are pitted against. So you'll get maybe a scene where, let's say a character needs to infiltrate a place. And the, the character, he's done his research, he's scouted, and he's decided that the fastest way in is to walk up to the front gates pretending to be someone else. And so he gets there dressed in whatever disguise he needs to be, and it's not that great of a disguise, really, but he says a few things and bullies the, the guards with a few threats, and they're in. They, they wave him on. And that does not make your hero look especially smart or cunning or anything. It just makes the guards look stupid. And if the guards look stupid, your hero looks stupid. And we touched on this a little bit before in the episode that we did about don't make it easy. And the don't make it easy episode was about so many different aspects of this, about dialogue that, you know, they, the character just needs to get something, and so they throw out a few. There's a little bit of banter, and then the character just, the, the person they're going to for, for information just kind of rolls over and gives them everything that they need. And that was a don't make it easy. And that was that we talked about fight sequence and stuff, and that, that's a don't make it easy. And this kind of falls under that umbrella, but it is specific to antagonists and conflict. Sometimes I think authors think that in order to make the antagonist look really, really bad, 
They have to make the antagonist do horrible, horrible things. And sometimes those horrible things can seem a bit, bit um, what's that word when it's unnecessary? Gratuitous, a bit gratuitous. We get gratuitous violence. We get gratuitous scenes where we're just showing the bad guy doing horrible things. And then they completely erase that effort by making, when the hero or heroine encounters that bad guy, they erase all that effort by making it so easy for the hero to just overcome whatever this bad guy did, which then results in having to put forth more effort in ramping up how bad the bad guy is. Whereas you can avoid all of that by actually having the hero or heroine acknowledge the stakes of what they're up against. This guy is smart. This guy is fast. This guy is whatever. And for me to be able to overcome him, I'm going to have to be smarter, faster, whatever. So let's say you've got that same scene at the gate where the hero needs to get in. How could you, as the author, take those exact same elements, but instead of making the guards look stupid, you make the hero look smart? But, but keep it almost identical. Is there a way to do that? And the answer is yes. If you are inside your, your character, your hero's head, and he goes up to the guards in this maybe not so great disguise, he, you, you have him studying them. You have him understanding them and figuring out what it, what, what it is that they might respond to, what it is that about their characters, their situations that could be manipulated and used. For example, he notices that although this guard is dressed in, you know, a shiny uniform, his shoes are way, and they've been polished, shoes have been polished and they look well-maintained, but the soles are worn super, super thin. It tells him that this guy cannot afford new shoes. He is not in a financially good place. And so he's like, okay, I understand that. And so that's the direction he goes. And he's, he's, the character is now basing his um, reactions, the words he's saying, off the observations he's making of the, of the guards that he's encountering right here. You could have the exact same words, the exact same language, the exact same bribe offered or whatever. But because the character, the hero, is acknowledging the difficulty of the situation that he's in. And the hero himself is uh, nervous or, or feeling the stress and, and going, all right, if this doesn't work, then here's my alternative. I may have to run for my life. There's a place over there that I can hide. And he's situationally aware. And he goes through the same exact motions with the added difference of his basing his interaction off of now observations that he's making, it has gone from being, oh, those guards are really stupid to, oh, he outwitted those guards. You've gone from giving him really easy opponents that are, are easy to just walk all over and, and would never exist in real life, uh, and it makes it seem impo improbable, and there's no victory in, in this thing that he just accomplished, to having 
oh my God, he's outwitted these guys and gotten him into this situation. And now he's on to the next thing. And you feel the tension, you feel the, uh, the accomplishment and the triumph of what he's done. And he feels smarter. He feels stronger because you didn't make the guards look stupid by making it easy. And he just like did dumb stuff and they just fell for it. He actually, you're inside his head and you're, you're understanding why he's saying the things he is. That's how you take the exact same scenario and turn it from you gave him really stupid antagonists to you made him really smart to overcome those antagonists. Is there another way of doing the same thing? And I think the answer is, is going to be yes, but um, I'll, you've got the same, the guard and you've got the, our hero and you know, the poor disguise, disguise, et cetera, et cetera. And he bluffs his way through and at the other end realizes that was too easy because my opponent is too great. So they're setting me up. So something terrible is about to happen. Yes, that if if that is your intent, like it's all about what your plot calls for, what where it goes next. So let's say in this first example, the one that I was giving, the intent is he's really the plot's just leading him to get on the other side because there's somebody he needs to get to in there, right? So that's option A. But let's say your plot calls for once he gets on the other side, that's when the real action happens and there's like a firefight and all this other stuff, then that also works. So it really is based on what, wh- what the story calls for, what direction you're going. But the sin is when there is never someone that actually can become feels like a threat to your character. They're always just so easily smarter. They're always just so much easy. Um, I can't words today. Um, they just, just happen to be able to do things in ways that how dumb would a person have to be to fall for that? Right. And that's what all action is like all these thrillers and whatever. It all is a case of how dumb would that person have to be to fall for that? Or how weak does a person have to be to get beat up so easily? But we buy it and we believe it because we've established our characters as having had to work for it and train for it and outthink and, and everything else. And so by the time they get to the, per- the part where the, the per- how dumb does that person have to be? That person doesn't seem dumb anymore. They seem like a normal, average person, and our hero now seems that much smarter because we're inside their head and and acknowledging the fight instead of putting down the fight and belittling it. And it's, it's hard to explain without examples, um, but I, I, and it's possible that you you don't really see much of it done wrongly in um, a lot of what's published because. When it's done wrongly, it's not impressive. And it's hard to impress people and say, oh, my God, this book needs to get put into print when it's just so there. You know, it's just whatever. So by the time you finally start seeing it on the page in print, it's generally someone who's learned how to do it. Right. So where you're really going to see that is in the frustrations of people who are struggling to get their books published. Um or not really understanding what's wrong, why is why aren't these scenes working, why is this character not connecting with the audience, and and a lot of that's going to be because you're in, in an attempt to make your hero 
or heroine seems smarter, you're putting down the the antagonist instead of building up the hero. Is it also I I can think of examples where the antagonist at least early on in the book is a situation or a mystery um rather than the ultimate antagonist because we don't know who that person is yet or we don't we don't know we just there's this amorphous being out there that seems to be controlling things but we don't know who or what that is yet but the situation is just so bad that most people couldn't get out of it is is that also does that also play into this it can um in in the base it's how your hero deals with it right so let's say you have this horrific scenario going on and your hero walks in with all this swagger like i'm the boss i've been through worse than this this isn't going to do anything to me blah 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 and he gets in and gets out and everything's fine well you just ruined it, right? Or the hero could come in with all this, like, I'm fine, la, 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 and he gets his butt kicked tremendously. Now you have a story. Right. Or the hero goes, I've dealt with stuff like this before, and this is way worse, and I'm not sure I'm up to the task. Now you have a story. So it really depends on where that story is supposed to go and and what you're going to do with it. But anytime you've got a character who's just like, yeah, well, I'm smarter than you, and he really is, and nothing bad happens, and he just kind of seems to make his way through and gets out the other end, you've just made him a loser. Is the people aren't going to connect with it. Stories about conflict. Stories about overcoming. Stories about surmounting challenges and how this person does it in a way that makes them bigger and bolder and Better than life, right? At least these types of stories are. But that same principle applies to even very small town or small family type situations. If if you have, um, you know, Susie who comes home to her dysfunctional family and she's all like, "Well, I've I've been, you know, I've seen the world, and I know that you guys aren't all that anymore, and I'm just going to sit here and cross my arms and watch you guys make fools out of yourself, and then I'm going home after Christmas, and all I'm going to do is observe you guys being, you know, dysfunctional, and then I leave. That's not a story. But if Susie's like, yeah, I've, I've learned so much in life, and I'm finally ready to tackle my dysfunctional family, and she's observing all these crazy things that they're doing, but it's actually getting under her skin, and she's not as awesome or hasn't learned as much as she thought she had, now you've got a story. So it's really about that frame of mind of what's going on inside your character's head and whether the narrative is trying to make that character be better, stronger, whatever, by building the character up or by knocking the opponent down. Opponent can be anything. It can be the situation. It can be um, other people. It could be, like you said, a big, overwhelming, horrific circumstance. But knocking that down and making it smaller to make your hero look big is the absolute opposite way you're supposed to go around it, go about it. <laughs> when you're building your stories, how much, how much time do you spend fleshing out the antagonist in your mind? I think 
my motive in fleshing out, I mean, what I, I can't say like, oh, I spend this amount of time or this percentage of time. For me, the key to any antagonist, and this is even if it's a bit player, even if it's just the thug who's being sent out after, you know, like a foot soldier who's being sent out after your hero is understanding what's driving them, who they are, what are their fears, what are, what is it that really matters to them? Because let's say you have thug A and thug B who are the immediate concern for your hero. And, and let's say, let's, let's really go all out cliche on this and say that they're like mafioso henchmen, right? And they speak like the mafios. They do all the things textbook like you would see in the movies. What makes them any different than any other thing? They're, they're forgettable. They're, they, don't, they don't matter. But all of a sudden, you do something different. You give them something different, some reason to make them seem human. Give them something they're afraid of, something they care about. And all of a sudden, they're not interchangeable pieces anymore. And, and it matters. And I like Pulp Fiction, for example, you know, that the, the, the whole amazingness of that movie, and granted, it's been a long time since I've seen it, it's in the dialogue. It, you, you could have had that exact same movie without the dialogue, without giving the, those characters their own distinct personalities, and it would have just been so lame. And, and it's the same way with, with the antagonists that you're building along the way. So for me, it isn't a matter of how much time do I spend, you know, developing in. It's do I understand them? What is it that's driving this? Even if it's the lowliest henchman, is he more than just a nameless, faceless, interchangeable piece? Because even if the interactions between those henchmen and the main character are brief, there's still a way to let their humanity come through. And in humanity is where you find the story. So some characters are going to be a lot easier to do that to than others. Uh, but as long as you have them, as long as you see them as, hu as human with even good qualities, the best villains are those that are not all pure evil. Um, unless I guess you're writing a horror story or something, but even then the, the, the written word, books, rely so much on inner life in a way that movies don't. And you're going to have much richer villains and, and uh, much stronger emotional conflict in a story when you don't make them just pure evil, where there's, they've got better, bigger motives than, than what it, whatever it is that you know, you would typically expect to see. And if you think back on your mo the most memorable, memorable villains, um, you'll, you'll probably find that they were not your run-of-the-mill cookie-cutter uh, characters simply because they did have more of an inner life. They had something more driving them. So the question really is, do you know your, do you know your villains the same way that you know your heroes? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And just sort of to wrap up, the idea being that the villain or the situation, the, the more difficult the villain is to overcome, the more heroic the hero is. Is that a fair way of wrapping this up? Uh, yes, except I, I wouldn't say heroic, only because hero, um, heroic has a certain bright and shiny feel to it. And the best heroes are flawed human beings as well. 
So I wouldn't say that the more heroic your hero is, I would say the more compelling your ah, hero is. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's much better. All right. So that is it for this week's show. We appreciate you guys being here with us again. We will be back in your ears next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. And as always, if you have questions of about any of the topics that we discuss here, you're welcome to send them in so we can elaborate further. And we're happy to help you with the specific problems that you're working on. 